Amen. All right. Well, go ahead and take your Bibles tonight and go ahead and go to the book of Jude before we're going to start out tonight. We are going to uh, kind of, I'm going to kind of pick up, or I guess um, last week's message kind of laid a foundation for what I'm going to be preaching on this week. Tonight, I want to speak on the subject of the rapture. And specifically, what I want to talk about tonight is the pre-wrath rapture. Okay, How many are familiar with terms like pre-wrath, pre-trib, post-trib, mid-trib? We've got all these terms that you've heard out there. There's a lot of terms that are associated with uh, the end times. You know, what is coming in the future? We like to talk about that. I think it's a good thing to talk about. The Bible talks a lot about it. There's a lot of prophecy that is yet to be fulfilled. Stuff that I'm looking forward to. Uh, stuff that I'm watching for. You know, what is coming? And there is a day that's coming that God's people, they've been looking for for a very long time. There's that day when we are going to meet the Lord in the air. There's a day of judgment that is coming. And since the foundation of the world, we talked about this a little, last, little bit last week, God has had a plan. God has had a plan for dealing with sin. God knew when He created everything, when He put man in the garden, God knew that man was going to sin. God knew that there was going to be a fall. God knew what was going to happen and God had a plan to deal with it. God knew that one day He was going to come to this earth and he was going to have to die on the cross and pay for our sins. But he also knew that not everybody was going to accept that free gift of salvation. And he knew there was going to be a time where he was going to have to come and judge the rest of the world. And he was going to have to punish sin. And, you know, so what do we call this time? How do we make sense of all these things? There's many things we see in the Bible that are a future events. There's lots of terms that we're used to. We know titles like the last days. Uh, the time of the Gentiles, the tribulation, the day of the Lord, uh, the day of Christ, the second coming, glorious appearing, the resurrection, Christ's return, the millennial reign. You know, how do we make sense out of all these? How do we figure out how it's all going to play out? And I believe the one that we always focus the most of our attention on is, of course, the rapture. And I think for good reason, because that's the big day for us. That is that crowning day, as the song says, that's the day where we will get to see Christ, where we'll get to meet the Lord in the air, the day when our troubles are going to be over. And obviously, that's where we uh, focus. That's the most anticipated event for Christians, but it's also one of the most debated doctrines that's out there as to the, as to the timing of the rapture. And while most Baptists today are what would be considered pre-trib, in other words, they believe that the rapture is going to come before the tribulation. You know, you'll hear him say, you know, the next event on God's prophetic calendar is the rapture. Now, I don't know if you ever heard that before. I've heard that many times. You know, nothing else has to happen. No prophecy has to be fulfilled before the rapture. That is the next thing that could happen before the service is over. We've all heard that before. And yet all the prophecy preachers that go around preaching this stuff all the time, they all say that, but then when they're going from place to place, they go to the same places every year. They've got to have some new stuff when they come back. And so they'll start talking about the current events. Did you all hear what happened with ISIS? You know, did you hear about them destroying the temple of Jonah or the tomb of Jonah? Uh, you know, that was a prophetic event that took place. And they'll pull something out of the scriptures that alludes to that. And it's like, oh, you know, you know, this was a fulfillment of prophecy. It happened this week. We're seeing prophecy fulfilled before our eyes. Well, if no prophecies have to be fulfilled, before Jesus Christ returns, then why did we just see a prophecy fulfilled before Jesus Christ returned? 
If you're saying that was a fulfillment of prophecy and that prophecy was fulfilled before the rapture, then doesn't that mean that the rapture couldn't come until that prophecy was fulfilled? And how come we didn't hear you talking about that prophecy last year before it happened? All right, and, you know, it, and it's just, it's ridiculous. And, you know, these guys are very popular and they're, you know, you know, they're very sought after because you know what? Everybody loves a good disaster movie. All right, we all love a good disaster movie and they all come and they all tell the same story from Left Behind about how, you know, one of these days, you know, all these people are just going to disappear out of nowhere. Nobody's going to know what happens. Planes are going to be crashing everywhere. Cars are going to be crashing. People are going to be wondering, you know, what happened to my kids? Where are my kids? You know, and they, they tell the story and they get better at it all the time. And if you really enjoy that, just go read the Left Behind books or watch the Left Behind movie and uh, you can see it. It's a lot better than hearing somebody talk about it. But that's not the way the Bible says it's going to play out. It's a great story, but it is, it's, not, it's not biblical. And you'll find when it comes to you know, eschatology, all right, that's the fancy word for doctrine of last things, you know, that there is no consistency in what is taught in that doctrine. There is no consistency there at all. And, and I'll probably get into some of the things tonight that you've all heard taught and just show how there is no consistency there and how it doesn't make sense. And, you know, and that's always bothered me, you know, and thanks to those who challenged the mainstream teaching on the end times, it's forced those who are the most prominent, you know, defenders of that doctrine to run to dispensational truth, which was what I talked about last week. If you didn't hear last week's message, you need to hear last week's message to help you with the message I'm going to be talking about today. There's a lot of false teaching there. I'm not going to repeat all that, but they are turning to that to cover themselves. They're trying to protect this doctrine because they've made such a big deal about it for so many years. And it's resulted in them getting tangled up in the web of lies that's taught in dispensational truth. And so, you know, now they're teaching things. There's two raptures. I mean, I, I've heard and, you know, well-known Baptist preachers who have taught in, you know, who preach in big fundamental Baptist conferences teaching that there are two raptures. And I never heard anybody talk about two raptures until recently. And people are starting to pick up on this going into the dispensational truth stuff. And I'm, I'm I finally, I'm like, how do they think they can get away with preaching two raptures? And man, I, I finally, I read a book and I found one of the ways they have come up with recently to explain that. And it's ridiculous. I'm hoping I'll have time to get into that tonight. It's in my bonus points. But there is a, they came up with a very creative way to prove an extra rapture. And the thing is, their own method that they came up with their own, their own principle that they pulled out of the Old Testament to prove two raptures, that if you just study that principle, it absolutely kills another one of their pet doctrines if they're going to hang on to that. And I hope I have time to get into that tonight. If not, I probably will next week. But boy, go ahead and challenge me with the whole two rapture thing. All right, man, I'm ready to blow that one out into kingdom come. I'm telling you right now. And so, you know, they're teaching things. There's multiple gospels. I said it's just leading it. They're getting deeper and deeper into this stuff because they're trying to protect that that pre-trib doctrine and you know the truth is my, you know myself i used to i used to believe that way and i i'm not a, i'm i'm still friends with pre-trib people i don't think they're bad people i was for many years and i don't think i was a bad person but i did unfortunately while i had studied that subject a lot 
I had the wrong definitions of certain biblical terms that messed me all up. And because of that, it was very difficult for me whenever I would hear, you know, whenever I would hear people talking about what I'm going to be preaching about tonight, I just didn't get it. I didn't understand it. It was very confusing. How many have ever seen who's on first, you know, the who's on first bit by Evan Costello? And I feel like I am in the middle of that whenever I'm talking with somebody in this doctrine. You all remember the who's on first? Of course, you had Lou Costello who just can't get the fact that who is a name. He can't understand that, you know, and who and what, and I don't know. They're all names, and he's just confused out of his mind because those aren't names, those are words, you know. You know, Bud, when he's saying who's on first, in Lou's mind, he's asking a question. So he's confused, but you know what? The truth is, Lou Costello's not the only idiot in that conversation. Bud's also an idiot, too, because he's too dumb to realize that Lou does not understand that those are not words, that they're names. And because of his inability to understand what's going on in Lou's mind, they have that back and forth. And, you know, it makes for great entertainment, doesn't it? Well, the same thing's happening with the Baptists. We've got all these people out there that are trying to fight against this pre-wrath doctrine that I'm going to be teaching tonight. And they are constantly misrepresenting what is taught. In it. And they look at us like, you know, we're morons because what we're teaching, and they accuse us of thinking things that we don't think, that we don't believe. And and it's like they are, they're kind of like, I guess we'll call them Bud Abbott in that situation. They are, they just, they can't see what we're trying to say, what we're thinking. And so it messes them all up. Because, for example, if you start talking about being here for the tribulation. When you say tribulation, to the pre-trib group, tribulation equals seven years. Tribulation equals, you know, the wars, the famines, the pestilence, you know, the mark of the beast, the Antichrist. Uh, and, it, uh, and it also includes the wrath of God, the seven vials, the seven trumpets, you know, the demonic locust, the battle of Armageddon, all that's included in there in that whole seven years for a preacher person. But if you're talking to someone like me and you're talking about the tribulation, I'm not talking about the seven trumpets and the seven vials and Armageddon. I'm not talking about those things. We're not going to be here for those things. And it's like they can't see that. They refuse to understand that. And I was in the same place at one time. When I first started studying all this, I would see things in the Bible and I would look and I would say, why does it look like we're going to be here for that? And I would be like, but no, we, we can't. That's the tribulation. We have not been appointed unto wrath. And so I, I, held, you know, I held on to that for a long time, just thinking, I, I'm, I'm just seeing something wrong because we can't be here for the tribulation because we're not appointed unto wrath. And so I remember when it wasn't long after starting the church here, I did some preaching on that subject and I had some people asking me some questions about that, not arguing with me. They just... You know, sometimes people ask questions not to challenge the preacher and to fight the preacher. Sometimes people ask questions just because they don't know answers and they want answers. And they did. They asked some very good questions. And so I decided I was going to do some preaching on this. And I started studying and, you know, I started noticing things and I'm getting all confused. And when it comes to this subject, all right, some of you know who he is. Some of you probably don't. But Pastor Stephen Anderson from uh, Arizona, he's kind of known for preaching this. He's made a documentary called After the Tribulation 
that teaches basically what I'm talking about tonight. And he kind of owns the subject. And so if you teach that, you are obviously an Andersonite. You're somebody who you're just following Stephen Anderson. I've been accused of that several times. But the truth is, when I started studying this, I didn't even know who he was. And or it was around that time. I remember I had I had heard about when I first heard about him. It was when he had gotten beat up by the Border Patrol uh, people. And I, and I remember I, I saw that story and I thought that's terrible. I didn't realize we had that kind of stuff going on in America. You know, fortunately, we live far enough away from the border. We don't deal with that stuff. And I remember I went and I listened to a couple of his messages on his website, but I didn't pay a whole lot of attention to him. And when I first noticed him, I heard him preach a message, the truth about sodomites. And man, did he tear the sodomites apart. And I was just like, wow. And preachers used to preach that way all the time. And I hadn't heard it in a while. And I enjoyed it. But then I, I remember I started studying this. And I thought about him. I was like, well, that guy, he seems like he knows what he's talking about. He seems pretty confident. I wonder what he says because he has the sermons on his website. And I went and I listened to one of his sermons about the end times. And he was preaching. And I realized he's post-trib. And I was like, what? He's post, you know, and I was thinking maybe mid-trib, but post-trib, if you're that, you're just a kook, you're a wacko. And I quit listening to him. I was like, uh, I obviously can't listen to this guy because he's post-trib. And so I didn't listen to him for a long time. And then I, you know, I got deeper into this. I started studying it and I started seeing more and more kind of mid-trib. Mid, you know, I kept thinking mid-trib, but... I wasn't going to listen to that guy because he was post-trib and I knew that was wrong. We are not here till Armageddon. We are not here, you know, through the seven trumpets and the seven vials. And we'll look at some of those things tonight. There is no way we're here for that. So I, I don't need to listen to him. But then the documentary finally came out after the tribulation and I watched it. And you know what? I still didn't get it. It was called After the Tribulation. He And he covers in there showing the difference between the wrath of God and the tribulation but it still didn't click in my mind because I still had the wrong definition in my head of what it was. And so I just kind of set that off to the side, didn't pay attention. And then finally, one day I figured out that, wait a minute, the tribulation and the wrath of God are two different things. And so, yes, we are here for all of the tribulation but the wrath, not for the wrath of God that comes after the tribulation. That's what I'm going to show you tonight. And then what was funny, I went back and I watched that video again. And sure enough, that's what it teaches in there. And I'm just like, but you do. You, sometimes you kind of get brainwashed. You kind of get wrong definitions in your head. And it would be like if I came from a world where ugly meant beautiful and beautiful meant ugly. And I came and I told you you were ugly. You would get insulted by that. But wait, in my world, that's a compliment. But in your world, you know, that's, that's an insult. And until we can figure out what the other one's talking about, we're going to have a tough time communicating there. And sadly, I personally believe that the post, a post-tribulation terminology is a proper biblical. You know, I think that's a biblical term because it is after the tribulation. We're going to show you that. But at the same time, if you tell people you're post-trib, automatically you're post-seven years. You think the rapture is going to come at Armageddon. You basically think we're going to like go up and then come right back down. And people laugh at that all the time. And these post-trib people, nobody teaches that. Nobody, nobody believes that. And so let's look at what the Bible actually says. Because the key to understanding the rapture is looking at it in a dispensational context. 
Well, wait a minute. I thought you said dispensationalism is bad. Yes, the Clarence Larkin dispensationalism is bad. But proper biblical dispensationalism okay, that is not taught across many Baptist churches is, is proper. What does that mean? Look at things in the way order that God revealed them. Okay, once again, God's had one plan all throughout time, but he has revealed it progressively, little by little. And in Jude chapter one, look at Jude chapter one and verse 14, because what I want to focus on tonight is the day of judgment, the day of the Lord. Y'all are familiar with those terms since very early in the history of man. God has warned us that a day is coming where God is going to judge the world because of sin. There is a day coming where God is going to pour His wrath out on this world. And we're going to start here. We're starting with this because this was revealed before the rapture, before the tribulation. People knew about the day of judgment before they knew about the rapture and the tribulation. So this, And it goes back as far as Enoch, even though we don't read about it in Genesis... Jude mentions in chapter 1, verse 14, And Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed and of all their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against them. So right here, Enoch, the seventh from Adam, way back, Way back, this is before the flood, Enoch preached that a day was coming where the Lord was going to come with 10,000 of his saints. And what's he coming for? He's coming to punish sin. He's coming to punish those who have lived ungodly. This is an event that has been known about for a very long time. And people, they, you know, another dispensationalism thing that I'll throw in there that's wrong, they try to use the translation of Enoch. Enoch. He was translated. He did not die. God took him to heaven early. And they'll try to say, you know, Enoch is a picture of the, of the rapture. And that's proof. You know, Enoch is proof that we're raptured before the tribulation because God raptured Enoch before the flood. But if you go and you look, yeah, God raptured Enoch before the flood, but it was 669 years before the flood. 669 years. I heard a preacher saying that one time. I've heard that multiple times that Enoch is, is proof. He's a picture that we're pulled out of here before any trouble comes because he got raptured before the flood. 669 years. He would have been, if you look at the year that he was born, you do all the math, he would have been 1,034 when the flood came. Nobody ever lived that long back then. And so that's just, you know, that's just ridiculous. But People, uh, you know, people try to use it, but understand while the day of judgment or the day of the Lord was revealed in the Old Testament, the rapture it was not. Even though we'll probably look at some more of this in the next couple of weeks, the rapture is mentioned in the Old Testament. You can definitely find the rapture in the Old Testament, but understand that it wasn't revealed to them yet. Okay, just like there are, there were many things that were mentioned, like we talked about, like the time of the Gentiles that is mentioned all over in the Old Testament, but it wasn't revealed, it wasn't understood until the book of Acts. So, um, you know, they did not, they were not looking for a rapture. They were not looking for a catching away in the Old Testament time. And even the disciples, when they were with Jesus, they weren't looking for that until after Jesus tells them about it in Matthew chapter 24. And even then they didn't totally understand it until Paul, you know, taught more 
on that subject. So understand also that while the New Testament clearly teaches the removal of God's people before the day of his wrath, it was only symbolized in the Old Testament. Okay, we are not here for the wrath of God. And you, you will find examples. I'm going to show them to you where there's proof in the Old Testament that God's people are not appointed to the wrath of God. There is proof in the Old Testament that God will remove us before He pours His wrath out. But once again, we know that now. But they did not know that back then. They did not know that during Jesus' time on earth. And so look at Matthew chapter 24 and verse 37. It says, But as the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and knew not until the flood came and took them all away. So shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Then shall two be in the field. One shall be taken and the other left. Right there, we see as it was in the days of Noah. And there's a lot of people that try to interpret that in different ways. And yeah, you know, there was violence in the earth in those days and there was the giants and all these things. And that's not what it's talking about. When it says as it was in the days of Noah, and I'm going to show it where it's even more clear in Luke, what that means is God took His people out and then immediately judgment came. Okay? Look at what it says in Luke 17, verse 26, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the days of the Son of Man. They did eat, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered into the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, also as it was in the days of Lot, they did eat, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they builded. But in the same day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even thus shall it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. You all see that? Immediately after God's people were protected, judgment came. Immediately. Remember that. Immediately After we go out, God pours His wrath out. Not three and a half years later after we go out. Immediately after we go out, God pours His wrath out on this world. That is so important to understand. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 7, "...and deliver just lot, vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelling among them in seeing and hearing vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. The Lord knoweth how to deliver the godly out of temptations." and to reserve the unjust unto the day of judgment to be punished. So we see in the New Testament, it teaches us that you know the stories of Noah and Lot and the way that God delivered them from His wrath is a principle for us. That God will deliver us from wrath. Before God pours His wrath out on this world, He is going to take us out of here. Okay? And people who preach against what I'm preaching always use these examples to prove what I'm about to tell you is wrong. But I'm going to show you that no, I agree. We are not here for the wrath of God. But wait do you see when the wrath of God happens. It is very clear in the Scriptures. But let's read a few more Scriptures too. I want to help the people that try to, uh, you know, say that we don't believe, or, you know, that we, you know, that always like, nope, it's got to be pre-trib, we're not appointed to wrath. Now, there's a lot more verses than just the one in 1 Thessalonians we're not appointed under wrath. Um, you know, it's clear throughout the Bible that the wrath of God is meant for the wicked 
or the lost. Jeremiah, you don't have to follow these. I'm going to jump around. I got, I got a lot of ground to cover. But Jeremiah 10.10 says, But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and everlasting King. At His wrath, the earth shall tremble and the nations shall not be able to abide His indignation. And Nahum 1.2, God is jealous and the Lord revengeth. The Lord revengeth and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on His adversaries and He reserveth wrath for His enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and in great power and will not at all acquit the wicked. The Lord hath His way in the whirlwind and in the storm and the clouds of the dust of His feet. We see here that even in the Old Testament it was taught that the wrath of God is for the wicked. It is not meant for His people. But, once again, we're looking at things in the order that God revealed them. We've got to understand that the Old Testament saints, they knew about the coming judgment of God, but they only saw... you know, our, they only saw that as judgment on the wicked. Okay? It's very clear the day of judgment is for the wicked. They saw that. Try to put yourself in an Old Testament saint's mindset. Forget for a second that you know the New Testament. They know about a day of judgment where God is going to pour out His wrath on the wicked. And that was true, but they had a problem. The Jews, when John the Baptist came and started preaching, they had a huge problem. They knew about the day of the Lord... They knew about God's coming judgment on the wicked, but you know their problem was they didn't understand that they were wicked, did they? They didn't understand that they were sinners. And John the Baptist, he was sent in the spirit of Elijah to prepare the hearts of the people to receive Jesus Christ as their Savior. Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, the very end of the Old Testament, it says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet, before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and he shall turn the heart of the fathers of the children, the heart of the children of their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. So John the Baptist, just like Jesus, he came, he started his ministry before Jesus, and he preached repentance. Why? He was trying to warn the Jews or show the Jews that they were sinners. Say not unto yourself, you have Abraham your father. God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. These guys thought they were all covered because they were Jews. They thought they were covered because they, in their minds, were doing a good job of keeping the law. But John the Baptist, you generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? What are you talking about, John? That's not for us. That's for the wicked. No, it was for them too because these people, they weren't saved. And John the Baptist came preaching... And so they were, they were aware of the day of judgment. They were aware of the day of the Lord, but they had no idea that they would be on the receiving end of punishment. They had no idea. They did not see that coming. They weren't expecting it. But look at, but then Jesus Christ came after, the, you know, after all this, it was revealed to Israel by Jesus Christ that the day of judgment included judging them. And Jesus was able to give them some good news. It's like Jesus and John the Baptist. John the Baptist, he kind of starts out giving the bad news. Who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Repent, you're sinners. But then Jesus comes along and he gives them the gospel. He gives them the good news. Jesus Christ tells, you know, he comes and he dies on the cross. He pays for their sins. So he gives them the gospel showing that those who receive salvation would escape judgment. Do you understand? Once again, they knew about the coming day of judgment, but they didn't think it was for them. John revealed that, no, it's for you. 
You all are in trouble. You're wicked. You're lost. Jesus and His disciples, they gave them the Gospel, the good news that John 3.36 says, He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, and he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. Who did Jesus say that to? He said it to Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews who came to Jesus by night, and he told him, you must be born again. Nicodemus was already religious. Nicodemus was already doing a good job for the, you know, as far as man's concerned, keeping the law. But Nicodemus was lost, and Jesus said, You must be born again, and you get born again by believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. Whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. John 3.16 was said to Nicodemus. John 3.36, the wrath, but he that believeth not, the wrath of God abideth on him. If you do not believe on Jesus Christ, that day of judgment, that day of the Lord, it's for you. The wrath of God, it's on you, but not on those who believe. They will be spared the wrath of God. Romans 2.5 says, He that believe, or, um, But after thy hardness and impenitent heart, treasurest up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to every man according to his deeds. And then finally, the big one that everybody quotes all the time, and this is the proof of the pre-trib rapture, is 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, For God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, does that say God hath not appointed us to tribulation? We're not even going to touch tribulation really tonight, What most of what the Bible says about that. But it's very clear that we're going to experience some tribulation on this world, but that's not the wrath of God. If being martyred is the result of the wrath of God, then almost all the disciples suffered the wrath of God, didn't they? No, they didn't suffer the wrath of God. Boy, you know, God loves the martyrs. There's a special crown for the mar awaiting the martyrs. Those who lay down their life for God, they're not sacrificing anything. Their reward is going to be great in heaven. They're not under the wrath of God. Christians, then, even in our day, that are being persecuted, that are being killed, are they under the wrath of God? No. You suffering as a Christian, that is not the wrath of God. Those who suffer in earthquakes, famines, are they under the wrath of God? No, there's been earthquakes and famines all throughout history. That's not the wrath of God. There, you know, wars, is that a result of the wrath of God? No. But when it's raining fire and brimstone and things like that, is that the wrath of God? Absolutely. Those things that we see later in Revelation, those are the wrath of God. That's the wrath of God. But all the things of the tribulation, that is not the wrath of God. And so I do. I agree with everybody. We're not here for the wrath of God. Very clear throughout the Bible. And so the key to understanding, you know, or so, you know, the question we should be asking is what is the wrath of God? Most have mistakenly defined Daniel's 70th week as the wrath of God or the tribulation as the wrath of God. And that's a huge mistake. You can't. You can't prove that with the Bible. And the key to understanding what the wrath of God is, is understanding when the wrath of God is. Nothing's in this Bible by mistake. There are no wrong words in here. Everything is here for a reason. And we can find out when the wrath of God comes. I'm not saying I know the date. Anybody who's, you know, teach is pre-wrath and post-trib get accused of setting dates. Alright? You will not hear me ever set a date. Okay? I'm not setting a date. But, we do know certain things are going to happen first. And so the wrath of God clearly comes after the rapture, doesn't it? We've already established that throughout the Scriptures 
that we are not here for God's wrath. So we know the rapture has to happen before God pours his wrath out. But we also know that it's going to be it's going to happen quickly, immediately. The wrath of God comes, though, it comes on the day of the Lord. Okay? The day of the Lord is when the wrath of God comes. I'm going to jump around a bunch of scriptures again here. But Joel 1.15 says, The last for the day, for the day of the Lord is at hand, and as destruction from the Almighty shall it come. That doesn't sound too positive, does it? It's a, it's a time of destruction. Amos 5.18, Woe unto you that desire the day of the Lord. To what end is it for you? The day of the Lord is darkness and not light. Verse 20, Shall not the day of the Lord be darkness and not light, even very dark and no brightness in it? Why is it dark? Why is there no brightness? Well, we'll see that in a little bit. Obadiah 1.15 says, For the day of the Lord is near upon all the heathen. As thou hast done, it shall be done unto thee. Thy reward shall return upon thine own head. Zephaniah 1.7 Hold thy peace at the presence of the Lord. For the day of the Lord is at hand. For the Lord hath prepared a sacrifice. He hath bid his guests, and it shall come to pass in the day of the Lord's sacrifice that I will punish the princes and the king's children and all such as are clothed with strange apparel. Verse 14, The great day of the Lord is near. It is near and hasted greatly. Even the voice of the day of the Lord, the mighty man shall cry there bitterly. Note the mighty man crying out in the day of the Lord. Verse 18, Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them in the day of the Lord's wrath. Note the rich. Their, their gold and silver is not going to deliver them in the day of the Lord's wrath. But the whole land shall be devoured by the fire of his jealousy, for he shall make even a speedy riddance of them that dwell in the land. Zephaniah 2.2 2, Before the decree bring forth, before the day passes the chaff, before the fierce anger of the Lord come upon you, before the day of the Lord's anger come upon you, seek ye the Lord all ye meek of the earth, which have wrought his judgment. Seek righteousness, seek meekness. It may be ye shall be hid in the day of the Lord's anger. And just a side note, how are we going to seek after righteousness? Where are we going to find righteousness? Only in the work of Jesus Christ and the blood of Christ. Zechariah 14, verse 1. Behold, the day of the Lord cometh, and thy spoil shall be divided in the midst of thee. So right here, it's pretty clear the day of the Lord is a scary time. It's about the day of God's wrath. Notice all of this is Old Testament. And the, and the day of the Lord, it is. It was something to be feared. Because God is coming to pour out judgment on the world. Sadly, the Old Testament saints, they didn't see themselves as sinners and needing judgment. But once again, John the Baptist came, Jesus taught them that they were sinners, gave them the gospel. You don't have to experience the wrath of God. You can obtain salvation. You, you can be saved. And those who are saved will not experience the day of God's wrath. And so I believe the day of the Lord and the rapture, are they come at the same time. Because immediately after we're taken out, judgment comes. Just like immediately, the day that God took Lot and his family out, fire and brimstone rained. And the day of the Lord's wrath happens immediately after we are taken out. And there's not a long period of time. It is immediately, the day of God's wrath is the day of the Lord. And so... Uh, there's zero evidence. Zero evidence that God pours out His wrath before the day of the Lord. We looked at all those scriptures about the day of the Lord. You can't find anywhere in the Bible that shows God pouring out His wrath before the day of the Lord. Alright, so, the wrath of God, when does it come? Well, Joel 2.31 says, The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon into blood 
before the great and terrible day of the Lord come. Remember the darkness that it talked about? The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon... Has that happened yet? No. That will happen before the day of the Lord come. Y'all, that's pretty clear, isn't it? That will happen before the day of the Lord come. Now turn over to Revelation chapter 6. Pretty much everybody agrees Revelation 6 is talking about tribulation. Alright? And I wholeheartedly agree. And when we get to the sixth seal in Revelation, it says, And I beheld, and when he had opened the sixth seal, lo, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair. That sounds like it's being darkened, isn't it? And the moon became as blood. And the stars of heaven fell onto the earth, even as a fig tree cast with her untimely figs when she was shaken of a mighty wind. And the heaven departed as a scroll when it is rolled together and every mountain and island moved out of their places. And the kings of the earth and the great men, remember the mighty men? Remember the rich men? The kings of the earth, the great men and the rich men and the chief captains and the mighty men and every bondman and every freeman hid themselves in the dens of the rocks of the mountains. And said to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of his wrath is come and who shall be able to stand? You all see that? Just like it taught in the Old Testament, just like it taught in Zechariah, we see the day of the Lord come and God, the sun's dark, moon turned blood. God pours out his wrath. The mighty men, the rich men. Why did it mention those things back in the Old Testament? Why did it mention it here in Revelation? It's showing those details because it's the same event. God does not pour His wrath out until after we're out of here and after the sun has been darkened and the moon has turned to blood. He doesn't do it until the sun being darkened and the moon turned to blood. That, when does that happen? After the tribulation. Well, how do you know that? Well, turn over to Matthew chapter 24. We don't have time to do this tonight, but if you go on Matthew 24 and Revelation 6, you can line up the events, the order of events perfectly. It is very, Matthew 24 is talking about the tribulation and it very clearly lines up with what we see in Revelation chapter 6. And look what it says in verse 29, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun shall be darkened and the moon shall not give her light. And the stars shall fall from heaven and the powers of the heaven shall be shaken. That's a pretty notable event, isn't it? The Bible calls it that great and notable day of the Lord. And right there we see the sun being darkened and moon turned to blood. And when does that happen? It happens after the tribulation. After the tribulation, after the sun is darkened and the moon is turned to blood, okay, then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Notice all the tribes of the earth mourning. Remember Revelation 6, all the mighty men and the rich men crying out. And he shall send his angels with the great sound of the trumpet. And, um, and they shall gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Right there. Angels gathering the elect. That is called the rapture. That is called the catching away. That is when we go out. When do we go out? After the tribulation. After the sun is darkened and the moon is turned to blood. Before God pours His wrath out on this world. Do you, do you see the consistency there? I mean, it doesn't really get any clearer than that. But just in case you're still wondering, let me show you a few more examples. Revelation chapter 14, verse 9. It says, And the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, 
If any man worship the beast in his image and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. And he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever, and they shall have no rest day or night, who worship the beast in his image, and whosoever receiveth the mark of his name. Everybody agrees that the mark of the beast situation, the Antichrist and all that, happens during the tribulation. And notice the Bible says, whoever takes the mark of the beast, they will experience the wrath of God. So that means... When people are taking the mark of the beast, the wrath of God has not happened yet. Y'all see that? That's pretty clear, isn't it? The people who take the mark, the Bible promises, they will experience the wrath of God. So therefore, the mark of the beast has to take place before the rapture. Before the wrath of God. Because immediately after we're taken out is when the wrath of God comes. And the Bible promises those who take the mark will experience the wrath of God. So it hasn't happened yet. And then look at Revelation 15, verse 1. And I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues. For in them is filled up the wrath of God. And I saw as it were a sea of glass mingled with fire on them that had gotten victory over the beast and over his image and over his mark and over the number of his name stand on the sea of glass having the harps of God. Notice it mentions the martyrs. Those who got victory over the beast. Now, how do you get victory over the beast? Well, it's those who love not their lives, even to the death. Those who are martyred during the tribulation, those who die for their faith, the Bible calls them the victors. They're the ones, they overcame the beast. But wait a minute, they got killed. But who cares? They went to heaven. They're martyrs. They are going to be rewarded greatly for that. If you die for your faith, folks, you didn't lose. All right, You won big time. When we stand before God, we're all going to want to be you. You're, you're going to, it's, it's worth it. All right. I don't think we ought to go looking to get martyred. I don't think we ought to go asking somebody to martyr us. But you know what? If it comes, we ought to be like, bring it. I believe that ought to be our attitude. Yeah, that's my attitude. And you can say all you want. People say, well, that's talking about the saved Jews during the tribulation. But understand, okay, we'll cover some of that later to prove that this is not talking about saved Jews during the tribulation. That is a ridiculous argument. But understand, these events in Revelation, however you want to interpret them, they come before the wrath of God. You all saw that very clear. Those who take the mark are promised to experience the wrath of God. So it hasn't happened yet. And the only verses people to use to prove a pre-trib rapture are verses about not being appointed to wrath. That's all they've got. That's it. So it's also clear you know, that God's wrath is poured out immediately after we're taken out, not three and a half years later. Most people agree, you know, that you know, the Left Behind series, they have it where it's about, you know, around the three and a half year period when the mark of the beast thing happens. Most people agree with all that. But the thing, God's wrath is not poured out three and a half years after we get taken out. It's immediately after we are taken out, God begins to pour His wrath on this world. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 1, go ahead and turn over there. Because this, this is a... 1 Thessalonians 4, we don't have time to go there. 
That's the most famous rapture passage that there is. That is everybody agrees that that's the rapture. As soon as 1 Thessalonians 4 is done, it goes right into 1 Thessalonians 5. And it's still, I believe, he's in the same, you're talking about the same thing. He's just told them about this wonderful event where they're going to meet their loved ones that they lost. People, they try to use the argument too. Well, you know, the rapture, it's about comfort, not about scaring people. If you're telling people about tribulation, how are you supposed to comfort them with that? The Bible says, wherefore, comfort one another with these words. But if you read all of 1 Thessalonians 4, he's not comforting them that they're not going to go through tribulation. He's comforting them that they're going to see their loved ones again. You know, I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not even as others which have no hope. So very clear, it's not, you know, the comfort is not that we're not going to go through tribulation. It's that if we're in tribulation and you see your loved one die, don't worry, you're going to see him again. You're going to see him at the rapture. And in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 1, But of the times and seasons, brethren, ye have no need that I write unto you, for yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief of the night. What comes as a thief of the night? The day of the Lord. Now, I agree that's the rapture, but what people will do when you start showing them the sun will be dark and the moon turn to blood before the great and terrible day of the Lord come, well, the day of the Lord is not the rapture. But wait a minute, I thought the rapture was going to come as a thief in the night. Well, it is. Well, the Bible says the day of the Lord is going to come as a thief in the night. Okay? The truth, and the day of the Lord doesn't come until after the sun's dark and the moon turn to blood. So, horrible argument there, but once again, it is the rapture. Verse 3. For when they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them as travail upon a woman with child and they shall not escape. But ye brethren, who's he talking to here? Brethren, save people. Ye brethren are not in darkness that that day should overtake you as a thief. Ye are all children of light and the children of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch. And be sober, for they that sleep, sleep in the night. And they that be drunken are drunken in the night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love and for an helmet, the hope of salvation. Alright, notice, listen, the thought of tribulation, it does not bother me. I'm gonna, I, I'm, it doesn't bother me. You think, you're crazy, that's nuts. But if you think I'm crazy because the thought of tribulation doesn't bother, doesn't bother me, you're basically saying my wife's nuts. Well, what do you, you talk about? You know, every time my wife gets pregnant, she looks forward to having that baby. Now, why would you look forward to having a baby? Okay? Okay, we got Miss Martha. She's expecting. Why would she look forward to having a baby? Do you realize how much pain she's going to go through? I'm not trying to scare you anything right now. You've been through it before, though. You know. It's painful. It is an agonizing experience. I've never, you know, I've never, thankfully, I'll never have to face that. But my wife's done it several times and you know, she'll be like, I just can't wait till I have this baby. And sometimes I'm just like, man, if it was me, I'd be praying for the rapture. <laughs> so I wouldn't have to deal with the tribulation. So I wouldn't have to deal with the pain. But why does a woman look forward to having a baby when they know it's going to cause all that terrible pain? Well, because they're not thinking about the delivery or the pain. They're thinking about what's going to come from that. And while the tribulation is not going to be a pleasant time. I just can't help but not care because I know what's coming after that. When I read about the rapture and when I think about what it's going to be like when that takes place, I'm sorry, I'm looking forward to it. So you're crazy. Well, then so are all these women that are looking forward to having their babies. 
They're crazy too. They definitely go through some tribulation, don't, don't they, during that time. But you know what? It's worth it. Why? Because what do you get out? You get that baby out of it and it's going to be worth it when we go through tribulation. Why? Because we're going to get to see Christ. We're going to be rewarded when we're in heaven. We're going to enjoy Him. We're going to enjoy those rewards for all eternity. So you know what? I don't care. I'm not worried about that. And that's why the Bible says, for that helmet, the hope of salvation, we, what, that, that help, we put that helmet on. You know what it does? It kind of protects our head. I'm not worried about tribulation. I'm not worried about what the Antichrist can do. I have the hope of salvation. I know that Jesus Christ at some point during that time is going to come and He's taken me out of this place. And I have that hope and you better believe that's going to be what gets me through that time. Whether I get, whether I get thrown in prison, whether I get my head cut off, whatever happens, I don't care. I know I'm going to receive salvation. I know that when Jesus Christ returns, I'm going to be caught up. If I'm alive, I'm going to be caught up. If I'm dead, I'm going to rise from the dead. And I've, I've said this before and I'll say it again. If that day comes where they cut my head off, I already know what my last words are going to be. And it's going to be, I'll see you all in a little bit. Because I'm coming back. <laughs> and, I, and I do. I believe that with all my heart. They can kill me, but they can't keep me dead. And I'm, I'm coming back. Why? For God has not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us. So whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with Him. Wherefore, comfort yourselves and edify one another, even as also ye do. So very clear in the Bible that the wrath of God, it is not for God's people. It is, it is for the wicked. Sadly, the Jews, they didn't understand that they were wicked. They didn't understand they were evil. Jesus and John the Baptist, they came, they showed them that they were sinners, but they gave them that good news that you can receive salvation through Jesus Christ. He died, He paid for their sins, He rose again, and all those who believe on Him will be saved and the wrath of God will not abide in those people. But it's very clear the wrath of God does not come until after we're taken out and the wrath of God does not come until after the tribulation. And so, Revelation, say, well, wait a minute, you showed us Revelation 6 and you said that that is tribulation. And then you showed us Revelation 14 and 15 and you said that's tribulation. But wait a minute, Revelation 9 has the, you know, the demonic locusts and all those things at the wrath of God. But we don't have time to go through all of Revelation and show you how it all works. But Revelation is not in chronological order. When you read the book of Revelation, you got to think of it kind of like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Okay, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they basically tell the same story four times, don't they? But they all add details to it to the stories, don't they? They don't all say it in the exact same way. They all kind of add details, and it's like you get another, you know, you see another layer of it. You can have a deeper understanding with each gospel. And then the same thing kind of happens in Revelation. It's not one continuous story, but it's God revealing His plan through seven seals. There's seven trumpets, seven vials, and there are even seven thunders that God chose not to reveal to us. And so, when we read those things, they're not all in chronological order. We'll see more of that and prove very clearly that Revelation is not in chronological order. But uh, that's where people sometimes get confused. 
is because you, you'll see the rapture that I believe is in Revelation chapter 7, but I think you see it again in Revelation chapter 14 because it's kind of repeating and you're getting, you know, you're getting another layer. God's revealing, He's showing a little more, making it a little deeper. And so, you know, just some quick bonus arguments that I want to throw in here is that, you know, some say the rapture, it is, it's about comfort, but, you know, you know, they're like, we can't comfort people when tribulation's coming. But the Bible is very clear that that, when the Bible says comfort one another in 1 Thessalonians 4, it's that we will see our loved ones again. It, they were all, they were constantly in tribulation during the early days as Christians, weren't they? They were constantly being persecuted. It wasn't the tribulation, but they understood, you know, Christians deal with tribulation. Dispensationalists, they say Matthew 24 can't be our rapture because Paul revealed the mystery of the rapture in 1 Corinthians 15. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. The rapture of the church was not revealed until 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Wrong. The rapture was revealed before that. The mystery that Paul was showing was a part of the rapture that we hadn't seen before. And that was the changing of our vile bodies into a body like Christ's body. That was a new layer of it that we hadn't seen before. Jesus talked about the rapture in Matthew 24, but He didn't reveal the whole change of the body, the corruptible putting on incorruption, mortal putting on immortality. Paul revealed that, but it's clearly the same event. But they'll, they'll try to use that to prove it's a different rapture. You know, there is the... Uh, real quickly, I'll tell you this. There's the lame method of teaching multiple raptures. And that is what people have said is the rapture, it's a three-phase event. Jesus Christ, the first fruits. Remember when He died and uh, he, many of those dead bodies rose and Jesus rose and Christ, the first fruits, and he took, he took all those Old Testament saints. They're already raptured. Even though in the book of Acts, they talk about David's sepulcher still being there. You know, there's New Testament evidence that shows the Old Testament saints have not risen yet. But they'll try to say that was the first part, the first fruits. And in the Old Testament, in Leviticus chapter 19, or, or in the Old I won't read it yet, but they had, there were three parts to their harvest. They had the first fruits, the first fruit that would become available, they would take those and they would give those for an offering. And then 50 days later at Pentecost, that was when they would harvest the rest of it. And then after they had the main harvest, they had what's known as the gleanings, where you go back and you get the stuff that was left over, the stuff that fell. So Jesus Christ was the first fruits of the rapture. Our rapture is the main harvest. And then there's the gleanings. That's the rapture of the Jews that happens during the tribulation. Well, here's the problem with that. If, okay, yeah, they did do harvest like that, kind of. Yes, there was the first fruits, the main harvest, but the gleanings, an interesting thing about that, Leviticus 19, when you reap the harvest of your land, thou shalt not wholly reap the corners of thy field, neither shalt thou gather the gleanings of thy harvest, and thou shalt not glean thy vineyard, neither shalt thou gather every grape of thy vineyard, thou shalt leave them for the poor and the stranger. I am the Lord your God. You know what? He said, don't take the gleanings. You leave them behind. And you know what? Fine. If the Jews are the gleanings, Great, but they're getting left behind. You, they weren't supposed to reap the gleanings. They were supposed to leave those. Deuteronomy 14, 19, when thou cuttest down thine harvest in thy field and hast forgot a sheaf in the field, 
Thou shalt not go again and fetch it. It shall be for the stranger, for the fatherless, and for the widow, that the Lord thy God may bless thee in all the work of thine hands. And when thou beatest thine olive tree, thou shalt not go over the boughs again. It shall be for the stranger, for the fatherless, and for the widow. And when thou gatherest the grapes of thy vineyard, thou shalt not glean it afterward. It shall be for the stranger, for the fatherless, and for the widow. So fine. If you want to say the gleanings is about the Jews, okay, fine, we'll give you that. But guess what? The gleanings are supposed to get left. They're not supposed to get picked up. And you know what? If you don't go up in the rapture that I'm going up in, you're not going up, period. And that is a lame attempt. Once again, people are trying to hang on to that. And they're, also, they're trying to hang on to that pre-trip and they're, they're trying to hang on to the pro-Jew. And you just can't make that fit biblically. But the pre-wrath rapture, that is, that's what the Bible teaches. We are going to go out after the tribulation. We need to prepare people for that. We have a bunch of wimpy Christians out there today that don't know how to stand up to anything. If you can't take a stand in the day and age that we're living in now, in this time, what in the world are you going to do when they're threatening to kill you? You're not, you're not going to make it. These Christians that just bend over backwards, going along with the government on everything. I heard a well-known preacher just this week. I was listening to a message of him preaching on the rapture. Those of you that stand against the government, you know, you're just you're wasting your time standing against the government. You know, it's not going to all go bad until after we're gone. Oh. You know, that's why this needs to be taught because we got a bunch of people. You know, the government's good. The government's good. We got to go along with the government. You realize it's going to be the government. That's going to be going after God's people. And all these, and there's going to be a lot of people, when it all starts going down, this can't be it. That can't be the mark of the beast. We're still here. No, it is the mark of the beast. We're still going to be here. We got to warn people for it. And maybe people start toughening up a little bit. I want to toughen myself up because I, I want to be ready when that day comes. And the Bible has given us plenty of warning and we need, we have no excuse to not be ready for that day. And so with that, let's go ahead and we'll close now. So I'll stand.